1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 to 10 As you come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ for it stands in scripture behold I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, looking at Andrew's picture down there, he did a great job, didn't he? Um, but I don't think we want to let any church insurers see how much fire we've got at church. Uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes being a Christian's pretty hard. Uh, it's when we get mocked because of the faith that we hold. It's, it's when we get shamed because of what we believe. And never underestimate the, the power of shaming. Um, it really cuts deep when, when you get shamed in front of people. And sometimes in some settings it might be quite tempting to become all very secretive and to downplay the part that Jesus has in our lives simply because we don't want to be shamed. But can you imagine how Christians who are being severely persecuted for their faith might be tempted to hide their faith or to downplay their commitment to Jesus Christ? Now, when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, we we talked about this right at the start of this series, Um, He was living in Rome, and he was writing to a people who were also living under Roman rule. And at that point in time, they were suffering terribly under the persecutions of Nero. Uh, It was worse in Rome, where Peter was, uh, but it it also extended throughout the empire. And Christians were pretty much hated by everyone. They were mocked, they were ridiculed, they were abused, they were tortured... They were being killed. And in all of this, um, one of the major things was they were being publicly humiliated and shamed. And there's places in the world today where Christians are suffering in a similar way and once again being publicly shamed. Um, you know, I think it might be an old Sesame Street song. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things is not the same. I'm seeing a few nods, people remembering that song. Um, Well, that's pretty much what it was. You know, with Christians, you're different. You're an anomaly. You don't belong here. You don't fit into our world. And even in our own country, in Australia, particularly on certain social issues, any Christian who speaks out, especially if they're a public figure, any Christian who dares to speak the truth and and to say, hey, that the world's way leads to death, and this is what God says, they get publicly shamed. Over the last few years, 
social media would have had to have become one of the most powerful Christian shaming we weapons in Satan's arsenal. Sometimes it seems like it's public sport to take part in a public social media pile-on in a bid to outdo each other in shaming a particular Christian. And it's not only social media. It's becoming increasingly common in the liberal mainstream media as well. I've been publicly shamed at times for daring to teach the truth of God's word. But nothing at all like, like Christians who might be well-known public figures, such as Margaret Court, publicly shamed for upholding the traditional Christian view of marriage. Israel Folau, publicly shamed for, for saying that an unrepentant sinner will go to hell. And this might be true for you as well. You, you might have been publicly shamed for being a Christian and not trying to hide it. You might have been that student who dares to say to their teachers and to their classmates, well, you're teaching me that evolution is a law of science, but it can't possibly be a law like you claim. It could only be a theory because it can't be proven and it can't be replicated. And I believe that God created life and the universe and everything in it. Or you might be that Christian who says to your friend or your family member, I love you but I can't go to your same-sex wedding because I cannot help you to celebrate and to commit to something which God abhors. Or you might be that Christian who dares to speak on behalf of the weakest and the most vulnerable of our society and to say, stand up and say, it is murder to take the life of an unborn child. Or you might be bold enough to publicly speak the gospel of Christ and tell the world that they need to repent and submit to Jesus as Lord. Now, if you do any of these sorts of things, the odds are pretty high that you will be publicly shamed. And in the context of public persecution, ridicule and shame, Peter's word to us today, and it's the word that he gave to those people that he is writing the letter to, is that you might be shamed before the world, but in God's eyes, God's people will be honoured. And that's what really matters. You may get shamed before the world, but God will honour you. To be a disciple of Jesus, to be a Christian, is to belong to the people of God. Actually, it's more than that. Christians are the people of God. And as such, there is no shame for us but in God's eyes, as we testify to God, we receive honour. And that's what really matters. Right. So this is the setting that, that, that he's speaking in. Let, let's now turn to the Bible reading. Uh, and it starts out with this metaphor about Jesus being a living stone. Now, that seems a pretty strange sort of a metaphor for, for Peter to use, but it's a metaphor that works really well. You see... For the Jews, the temple is what represented the presence of God. Maintaining the sacrificial system at the temple, that's what was required for, for the purity of the people. And the temple itself, which was built of stones, that was where God dwelt. By the way, not long after this letter was written, the temple was destroyed 
It's a historical fact. Jesus predicted that the temple would be destroyed. And a few short years later, in 70 AD, it was completely destroyed. But nevertheless, for the Jew, the temple remained the holy place for them. And even today, the Jews go to the ruined remains of the temple. There's just a few stones left of, of, of what is probably the foundation of the temple, some of the outer areas. And it's what's now become known as the Wailing Wall. And that's where they like to pray. But the thing is, it was the Apostle Paul who said, the God who created the universe, he doesn't live in a temple built by human hands. As if he would. But there once was a time when the glory of God's presence did dwell in the temple. But by the time of Jesus, that, that time had long passed. Uh, it happened in Ezekiel chapter 10. We can read about how Ezekiel, Ezekiel saw the glory of God leave the temple and it never returned. But when Jesus came, this was God's return to the temple. This was the presence of God returning to the temple. Jesus was the place that God dwelt because Jesus is God. But what happened when Jesus went to the temple? They rejected him. And what a tragedy that is. When God visited his temple, when Jesus entered the religious capital of Jerusalem and visited the temple, they didn't only reject him, they put him on trial and they executed him. Now, when I use that word tragedy, don't think for a moment that it was some kind of horrendous mistake. Like God goes, hmm, I'll send Jesus to the temple. Really, they did that to him? Golly, I didn't see that happen, happening. Yeah, it wasn't a mistake. This was all part of the transition that God had planned. It was part of this transition that was foretold by the prophets of old. In fact, in this very Bible reading that we're studying today, there are so many Old Testament references in this passage that if we studied all of these Old Testament references, we wouldn't have time for the message. But it was God's plan. The prophets had foretold it. And Jesus knew that what was going on. It was a time of radical transition. So what had happened is back in the time of Ezekiel, God had removed his presence from the temple. But God was now present in Jesus Christ, who's here called the living stone. And Jesus was going to build a new temple the Christian church. A temple not built of stones, but built of living stones. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, we catch a bit of a glimpse of this transition. Let me set the scene. This is a time when Jesus came to Jerusalem and Jesus has entered the temple. And the religious leaders have just questioned the authority of Jesus. And so Jesus tells them a very cutting parable. It was the parable of the tenants, uh, which is about the tenants of a vineyard who rebelled against the owner and they wouldn't give the owner his dues. And eventually the owner of the vineyard said, you know, I, I, I've tried sending my servants and whatnot. They haven't respected them. I know, I'll send my own son. They'll have to respect him. But of course, if you know the parable, it didn't, that didn't happen. 
he sent his son and they killed the owner's son, right? So he just told this very cutting parable and the religious leaders knew that, that he was speaking it against them. They knew it was about us, about them. And so it was obviously talking about how the religious leaders had rebelled against God. They, they, God had sent his prophets, they'd ignored them. In fact, some of them they'd, they'd um, shamed, some of them they had killed. But so God would send his own son and then they would kill him. And then Jesus quoted Psalm 118. He said, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's, that's the main starting block that they start building the, the building from. He says, this was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in ours. Now, I'm finding this um, letter that Peter wrote um, marvellous, marvellous, because Peter, you can see that he keeps reflecting back to the things that Jesus had taught. And the Apostle Peter heard Jesus say this, and this is something that had stuck with Peter. And it was a lesson that he not only learned, it was a lesson that he shared over and over again. Uh, maybe the, the metaphor of a rock meant a lot to Peter, because do you remember that Peter got a name change? He used to be called Simon, but then, but then Jesus changed his name to Peter, meaning the rock. And, and this is how it happened. Um, it was when, when Jesus said, hey, who do people say that I am? And people say, oh, you, you might be this fella, you might be this fella. And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, top marks, Peter. From now on, I'm going to, sorry, Simon, from now on, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to call you Peter which means, in Greek, rock. And so this image of the rock stuck with Peter. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, we, we hear a sermon that Peter gives. Um, or sort of a sermon. It was actually more of a defense. In Acts chapter 4, after the, this happened after the resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus had ascended into heaven, and it was after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit had come to the church, and Peter and John had been arrested. You know why they were arrested? Because they'd healed someone, a cripple. They'd helped him to get up and walk in the name of Jesus. And so they get hauled before the religious authorities and then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. All right? So Peter had learned this from Jesus. And then in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit helped Peter to speak it out when he was hauled up before those religious authorities. And as it all panned out, it wasn't only Jesus who was rejected by the Jews. It was the whole Christian church was eventually rejected. They were banned from the synagogues. 
They weren't allowed to go to the temple anymore. So how could they worship God? If they, if they weren't allowed to go to the temple, how could they worship God? Isn't that where God lived? Well, here's the thing. This is something completely new that God was doing. Yeah, Jesus was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. By the way, being chosen is a theme that's going to keep coming up through this letter. Jesus was chosen. We are chosen, and we're going to hear this over and over again. And as we come to Jesus, and by the way, to become a Christian involves coming to Jesus, and, and to come to Jesus means we have to leave other stuff behind. We leave behind our old sinful way of life. We leave all of that behind, and we come to Jesus. And as we come to Jesus, who is the living stone, we ourselves also like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. When we come to Jesus, something amazing, something profound is taking place. And it's something which is much bigger than just us. You know, for many people today, and even for people in the church, their perspective is so self-focused. It's all about me. What's in it for me? What happens to me? What's my destiny? Well, let's, let's take the focus off ourselves. Because our identity here in Christ, what we're being built into, isn't about me as an individual. And it isn't about you as an individual. This is the corporate us. Now, when I use the word corporate, the word corporate has sort of two different meanings. You know, we sort of mostly use the word corporate to do with business. You know, like, you know, there's a corporation or a corporate entity. That's not the way we're using this word. The word corporate means together, combined, united. Right? So I'm talking about the bunch of us together. It's we who are together. The corporate us, a mutual, shared, communal group. Christians together. The church. Last week, Peter started taking us in this direction. And we talked about how shared Christian community and love for each other is so important. And now today, we're going to go deeper. We're going to go deeper to discover why this is so important. Why our Christian love and shared community of love is so important. You see, God isn't building us individually into a spiritual house. He's building us together as a spiritual house, right? We're, we're not a hollow stone in which God lives. It's a group of stones that come together to form the place where God lives. Now, some people think of the church building as the house of God. Not at all. It's the people. It's the church community who are the house of God. 
when Christians gather together as the corporate community, communal people of God, God is doing something profound. God is building us into his spiritual home. And this is the place where the Spirit of God dwells. Now, would I be right in saying that most of us crave to have an experience of the presence of God? Would I be right in saying that? I want to see some noddings or shakings of heads. All right, we've got some noddings of heads happening. How do we experience the presence of God in a church? How? How? How do we experience the presence of God in a church? You know what? It's not when excellent musicians play really moving music that God suddenly becomes present in a church. Now, I am very aware of the power of music and the ability of music to touch us where we feel and to stimulate our emotions. But I want you to understand that music does not conjure up the presence of God. And it's not about having the right mood lighting or the right building design or the right furnishings so that everything is just so. That's not what makes God present in a church either. And parents, parents, I want you to know that God is not scared away by a crying baby. All right? You don't need to leave the room because your infant is crying. You don't need to do that so the church can experience the presence of God. Why do we act as if a crying baby is going to scare God away? You see, it's not about the atmosphere. These days, so much planning and so much energy and so much expense goes into trying to create the right sort of environment or the right sort of atmosphere or the right sort of mood for God's spirit to be felt. Do you know what kind of environment is needed for us to experience the presence of God? It's simply the people of God, the individuals who have come to Jesus meeting together and us being built up by God into his spiritual home. That's how we experience God. That's how we experience the presence of God because that's where he is. Now that's a picture of unity, isn't it? And you remember last week, um, how, does, how does brotherly love grow into a deeper love within the church? It's a shared craving for the pure word of God. So at this point, we're going to be pulling together the last few weeks' messages. And this is what we come to. Firstly, by faith in Jesus, we come together as the people of God. Secondly, as we crave the pure word of God, our love for each other grows. Why does it grow? Because we're taking God in. And, and, we're, and because it's the pure word of God, there's, there's, nothing, uh, there's nothing bad in it. There's, nothing, there's no lies. There's no deceit in it. And we're being brought together in truth 
Thirdly, God is building us as the gathered people of God into his spiritual home. But you know what? It gets deeper yet. It gets even more profound than this. He's making us into a holy priesthood. Okay. Is anybody here thinking of um, taking up a new job, a new vocation, perhaps uh, joining the ministry, joining, becoming a priest? It's not a job that that many people really want. There's, there's lots of experts who feel very capable of telling the priest what they should or shouldn't be doing, but not too many are itching to take it on. Now, there once was a time when ordinary people like you and I needed to have an intermediary between us and God. And at that time, it was the worthy men of the tribe of Levi who would serve in the temple. They were the priests. But even they didn't get to experience the presence of God. It was only the high priest who was ever allowed into the Holy of Holies. That was that little room where God dwelt. And he was only allowed to go in there once a year after a great big long purification process. One man could go into the Holy of Holies once a year to experience the presence of God. But now we, not individually, but we as the communal church of God are being built into the priesthood. How do you feel about that? You see, in the church, we tend to think of the pastor or the minister or the padre as the priest. And he's the bloke who does the special God stuff. He's the bloke who's responsible to live a little bit more holy than the rest of us. Uh, by the way, I've probably let you down there. Sorry about that. Um, I don't think I'm any holier than most of you and probably a fair bit less holier than some of you. But we think that he's the one who's set aside to serve Jesus and, and he's the one who's responsible for making sure the church operates as it should. But this is not the case at all. You are as much a part of the priesthood of God as what I am. You and I together as the church are being built up together as the temple of God and the priesthood of God. This is the profound thing that God is doing. And it's about what's happening in a group of people. And so if you're a Christian on your own, you're probably going to miss out on some of this. You're going to miss out on this amazing thing that God is doing in a church who are united together in Christ. Righto. Let's put legs on this. Some of you are probably saying, okay, so we're the real world priesthood. What does that mean? What does that mean to be part of the royal priesthood of God? What's the purpose of it? Are we being built up into the, a, a spiritual building into which God dwells so that we can feel really good about ourselves? Are we being made into a holy priesthood so that we can have an identity to be proud of? Hey, guess what, everybody? I'm part of the priesthood of God. Is that what it's about? No, it's not about us. 
And it's not even so I can say to you and use it as an evangelism tool, God has a plan and a purpose for your life. See, it's not about making us feel good. This is the reason that we're being made into, into this new priesthood. It's so that we can offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because that's what the priesthood did. They, they were the ones who offered the sacrifices. I mean, we don't need to offer blood sacrifices. We don't need to offer the blood of bulls and sheep and goats and whatnot. Because Jesus was our once and for all blood sacrifice given on our behalf, offered for for the cleansing of our sins. It's not blood sacrifice that God requires. The sacrifice that God requires of us is a sacrifice that he's always required of his people. And you might be sitting here thinking to yourself, what do I have to offer God? What do I have to offer God? I'm not sure that I have anything to offer God. And you know what? You're right. I know that on my own, I have nothing worthy to offer God. But for us as his people, and through the Lord Jesus Christ, we offer spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God. And they're, they're acceptable to God because it comes through Jesus Christ. It's not about the blood of bulls or sheep or goats. It's not about giving a grain offering or a food offering. It's not about any of the other offerings that you read about in Leviticus. It's not about how much money we put in the offering. And this sacrifice, it isn't even about choosing what we're going to go without for Lent. The sacrifice we offer is living holy lives, praising God and declaring and proclaiming the excellencies of the God who called us out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Right? So our sacrifice is righteous living, adoring praise and witnessing to the gospel. Jesus is building us together with him into his church. And as his holy priesthood together, our sacrifice is righteous living, adoring praise, and witnessing to the gospel. And we're going we're gonna to leave that there now for today. And we're going to come back to this again next week because there's still so much more that we need to talk about in this passage. Let's pray. Lord, it is your doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes that the stone that was rejected, our Lord Jesus Christ, has become the foundation stone of this incredible thing that you are building. He was killed, but now he is raised from the dead and he is the living stone. Oh Lord, for, for many of us, there's been times when we've despised your church and we've absented ourselves from fellowship and we've tried to go it alone. We might have called it hurt. 
We might have called it having time out. We might have justified it by saying it's all too hard and it's not worth it. But Lord, you never said that doing your will would be easy. And deep down, we know that fellowshipping together as your church is your will and your design and your calling. And therefore, when we take our stone out of the building of the living stone, that's sin. God, forgive us. And Lord, we want to thank you that you are the builder. And we want to say, I am a living stone in your hands, ready to be built. I surrender my pride. I surrender my own designs. And I submit myself wholly and completely to you. May we as living stones be built into your church for your glory. And as your royal priesthood, may we serve you and honour you and glorify you. May we live holy lives worthy of you and to unashamedly proclaim your glorious gospel into the world. Come, Lord Jesus Christ, and build your people into your temple where you dwell. In Jesus' name, amen.